welcome to the Brain Tools Podcast, where you're going to learn how your brain works and how you can use it to level up your life. It's practical brain science for everyday people. I'm your co-host, Sam, a self-professed neuroscience nerd on a mission to share brain science with the world in words everyone can understand. And I'm Kieran, and I specialize in neuroscience at university and now run a metacognition education startup in Asia. Each episode, you walk away with six practical brain tools that you can use immediately. No fluff, just the good stuff with a side of banter. Plus, grab our show notes, the research, and tons of other free resources, including guides and classes, just by joining our growing Brain Tools community at braintools.mn.co. Best of all, it's totally free. But for now, the Brain Tools Podcast. All right, guys, welcome back to the Brain Tools Podcast. We're really, really excited to have you this week. But before we get into this amazing episode on addiction, we just wanted to show some love and appreciation for all the feedback. We've had over 40 reviews in Australia alone in a week. We've hit over 600 downloads, and that continues to grow. And we're really, really grateful for this as we keep growing this Brain Tools Podcast, as well as all the amazing feedback we've been given so far with people really appreciating understanding how their brain works and speaking of kieran lovely to see you again lovely to see you too sammy how are you very well very well very excited for another episode of brain tools don't know about your weekend but this is uh, very timely for me i believe it is too mate i'm not gonna lie it is it's pouring down in singapore so you're brightening up my day with your beautiful beaming face so i'm excited (laughs) Stop it. Stop it. Speaking of brightening up, speaking of brightening up days, uh, last week focused on uh, on good habits and forming habits and routines. So if you haven't listened to that podcast, go listen to that one because it's a really good lead into this. But this week we're talking about bad habits and removing bad habits. And so this episode, what it's all about is everyday addictions. You're going to learn how they work, why you're addicted to social media, and get a few brain tools too to help you break that addiction, break that addiction to technology. And we thought this was really, really timely, um, Kieran. And I don't know if this is the same for you, but with myself and a lot of my friends right now, uh, you know, we're all incredibly addicted to technology and media. And what I mean by that is phones, social media, you've got Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn for some, Netflix, Stan, reality TV, even uh don't hear me, mum. Pornography. And these are all these modern addictions, which are <laughs> mobile. <laughs> and it's, it's true though. These these things are these are all forms of this like softer everyday uh, addiction, which we're really, really excited to talk about because it's a little bit different from the traditional uh, addiction research, which I, I know you looked into, Kieran. Yeah, it's spot on. And because I don't know about you, but when I was looking into this, when you hear the word addiction, Sam, for me, it's like I immediately think drugs. Like that's my heuristic. Yeah, like it's addiction, same. it's drugs, it's heavy, it's intense, it destroys families, which it definitely does. And I think that's where most of the research when we were preparing for this um, it, it lies. It's all about that sort of opioid crisis. It's all about heroin. It was all about cocaine. And that's where a lot of the research is. And it's not that we're not going to touch on this today because a lot of the research is very compelling in terms of addiction. But in reality, we are not here to do a 12-step process on how you overcome your inherent addictions because that would be some form of self-help that we are totally not qualified to do. And I know we're laughing, but like, I mean, we don't want this to turn into that. <laughs> like, let's be honest, like, we don't want that, especially as a really good example. Like, prohibition in South Africa is going on right now um, due, during yeah. COVID 19. And there's been a bunch of stuff that's come out of that in terms of increased mortality and, and a bunch of other things. But where we want to 
so we don't want to discard that. And if you would like to hear that um, in a future episode, I think that's going to be really interesting that we, we do delve into at some stage. But most of the research now is not actually looking at substance-based addiction, but it's looking largely at behavioral-based addiction because so much of the research has shown that the brain pathways and the changes in the brain are actually so similar or almost indistinguishable between the two. Gambling, porn, sex, food, all these behaviours in excess um, are actually really important to look at. So we're going to be looking at behaviours because that's so timely given COVID-19 where a lot of people are bored, a lot of people are just sitting there given um, lockdown that a look at the behaviours. Obviously, last week was good habits. Now it's all about eliminating bad habits. So you hit the nail on the head. Like a lot of people are bored and this is really timely because Right now, there's there's so much more exposure and reliance on these addictive technologies because we're, a lot of us are in lockdown. I know I certainly am down in here in Melbourne and so are my friends. So it just means there's more exposure to Netflix binge watching. I'm checking my phone all the time, even when I'm working out. Even when I'm working out. <laughs> how's your, how's your working out productivity there? Yeah, it's it's in between reps. I'll have you know very much and it's quite effective. <laughs> um, like, like Picture this, right? Just imagine for a second you're listening to this. Uh, your phone rings. What do you do? Your phone rings. You instinctively go to check it out. Um, it's it's so ingrained in what we're doing every day. And it's even comes down to snacking. Like a lot of people are working from home at the moment with snacks so available. Is that you? That is me. I can tell you the exact times that I go for my afternoon snack. It's literally like 2.30 all the time. And it's become a habit loop. It's become a habit loop and it's never healthy. My bad. And a, and a habit loop is uh, is another way of talking about addiction, which we're going to cover a little bit uh, further down in this podcast. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the problems, about why people are addicted to social media, about why you're binge watching so many TV series and can't stop looking at your damn phone. And we're going to give you the brand answers to know why in the next section on problems. But before we start to do that, we are going to talk a little bit about how that actually works because it's really important to know what happens when we're addicted to something. And before we go into that, Kiri, you had a quote that you were reeling off to me before, and you love your quotes, which I loved. Thank you, Sam. You encourage the right behavior. Uh, the quote I've got here by Farshad Assel, um, which was very, very interesting. And he said, knowledge is learning something new every day. Wisdom is letting go of some bad habits every day. And I think that's a, a really interesting context of the conversation we're about to have, because as we said, it's all about eliminating those bad habits. And it's very interesting that good habits and bad habits, they sa- sh- share the exact same neural pathways, which we're about to get into. <clears throat> Super interesting. I, I also just really love that quote, but you've uh, you've really hit the nail on the head there. And before we do tell you about, talk about some of those problems with you know, social media and, and other things we're addicted to. We're just going to quickly explain how addiction works, but more importantly, where it comes from, where it starts and where does it start? Well, it all starts with our friend dopamine. Oh yes. <laughs> our friend dopamine. Everyone likes to talk about it. You've probably seen a million blogs on it. Everyone throws it around like it's a buzzword, but it's, it's really important. And what dopamine is, um, is just a neurotransmitter. And this means it's a chemical in your brain that affects how your brain works and, and how it functions. And it's actually the most powerful for regulating the brain and changing behavior according to lots of recent research. It's really fundamental, the, the control it has unparalleled. And there's a bit of an analogy for you, Kieran. And I'm ready. For, so I hope you like this. Dopamine is, is like the treat you use to train your dog. It's a brain treat. So when you get your dog and you, you say, hey, Bailey, you need to sit now. 
when you use a treat, that acts as the trigger for Bailey to sit. And that's his reward. Well, dopamine is, is like the reward in the brain. That's how it works. So when we experience something that is uh, rewarding, our brain relieves, releases dopamine as a treat to signal our brain that this is something we should do uh, more of. And that makes so much sense though, right? Because the whole, I, like with Darwinian theory, it's such an elegant thing because people are probably wondering, dopamine, we've heard all about it, but it's actually so, so important for our survival. Like when you look back, dopamine basically being that whole um, idea of motivation and craving, imagine if you didn't have the motivation to get up and go find food. Imagine if you didn't have the motivation to go up and reproduce, all right, which is critical to the survival of our species. Imagine if you didn't go and get water, you die. So you need motivation yeah. to do so. And dopamine is that clear correlate. And that is a cr- prime factor in driving goal-orientated behavior. And it's when you look at addicts and you look at um, behavioral and both um, drug-based addictions, there is such clear differences mm. in their levels of dopamine in their, in their body, which is so, so interesting. And that's where, Sam, I know you looked in a lot into the difference between like wanting and liking because dopamine is more wanting. Yeah. Liking is a completely different Absolutely. neural pathway altogether, but people confuse this massively all the time. Totally, totally. I mean, like you hit the nail on the head. Uh, people often say, you know, dopamine is pleasure, but dopamine is is not a pleasurable sensation in and of itself. Dopamine feels like that urge you get when you open Instagram, right? And, or you pick up your phone or that internal craving you have for another piece of chocolate or that need to play that one last episode you're binge watching of the Netflix series, even though it's 2 a.m. on a Tuesday and you hate yourself for doing it. You can't, you can't explain it. You just feel that you have to do it. And that's dopamine, right? So there's a big brain myth that it's this, this pleasurable uh, neurotransmitter, but really it's, it's kind of working under the surface as something that makes us have this, this desire to act. It's so, everyone, but you're so right. Everyone talks about dopamine that says pleasure, 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 all that sort of stuff. It's just not true. So I think debunking that myth early on when we were doing this is super important. Yeah, it is really, really important. And like now you kind of know a little bit about why dopamine, we've talked about why, why the, how it works, sorry, so to speak. What's really important is to talk about why, why do we have dopamine? Why does it exist in the first place? And that's because of the way we learn. So there's been some really interesting um, research around this, Kieran. I know we've talked about it, but the, the fact that most learning is considered to be trial and error. It's actually called reinforcement learning. And what happens is you do something, say, post something on Instagram, then you receive a reward signal. You get likes. You get 10 likes. You get 100 likes. You get some comments from people you like. Your brain then associates that learning, uh, that, that behavior with that reward and so it learns that this is a, a thing it needs to do again. And that's all reinforcement learning is. It's dopamine that's then released during this reinforcement learning that teaches you to do it again. And the crazy thing is this is how we learn almost everything. Almost everything. Like there's, there's been a lot of modern research that says almost everything is attributed to reinforcement learning. We're learning machines and we're relearning machines and you need to be able to do that. Like it makes sense that you want to double down on the things that are quote unquote good for you. That's the operative word because addiction changes that completely, but um, you want to sort of get rid of the things that are bad. Um, And so that reinforcement learning um, where dopamine is a key driver is very important. (laughs) It's the reason we've survived so far. But it's not as simple as just, you know, you know, you do something and then you experience dopamine, so you do more of it. Because our brains are actually these prediction machines, these prediction engines. 
like we like to guess what's coming next and everyone does this you're watching a movie what's that thing you say to your friend next to you hey i bet this happens i bet so-and-so killed you are, you are so that person though as well i can so imagine you uh, just like jumping in there i'm not watching a movie no. with you ever <laughs> i am not and that is such an right now um how dare you it does. So our brain works on this pattern recognition. And once it recognizes a pattern, like your phone notification buzzing, it begins to anticipate and expect what's going to happen next. Am I going to get likes? Is this going to be a reward? Is this going to be something that makes me feel good in some way? And your brain then computes the expectation versus what actually happens. And this is called reward prediction error coding. I know that sounds a bit confusing and a bit crazy, but it basically decides how you're going to act next time versus how you expected you should, the reward should be versus what actually happened. So it's it's pretty pretty crazy. And the the incredible thing about reward prediction error coding, and I know that's a big word, so don't be too scared of it, is that it actually helps us learn what to do because we expect something is going to be good. And if it's not as good as we expect, then we learn to do less of it or so forth in the other way. But the big thing is it's all about anticipation. You're ready it's for something. And are you listening closely? Because this next section is about anticipating. Anticipating dopamine, that terrible late night FM voice, Um, (laughs) which is, I I apologize for that, for for you to have to hear that. But really dopamine is released by the cue, the expectation that you're going to have a reward. So the, the peak of dopamine where you experience it most is before you eat the piece of cake not while you're eating the piece of cake. That is so interesting. Because as we said, like it's that differentiation between wanting and liking. It's like peak motivation is the wanting, but the moment you get that thing, um, it's a massive mismatch. And last week's episode, we spoke about the whole um, model of habits um, and reinforcement learning, which is you have a cue, then you've got a craving, you've got a routine or behavior and then reward. And you're saying that the motivation or the dopamine release peaks at that cue and craving issue which is so subconscious it's so hard to get rid of once it's learned it does right because it's 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 ingrained into our brain's wiring for lack of a better word and there's a quote i love and it's satisfaction is the death of desire by michael romansky i'm taking the quote mantle from you i don't care what you say (laughs) Um, i really like it because it's it's also a fact of like because you've mentioned the whole anticipation and like where like what happens but like where it happens in the brain is also the interesting part because we Mm. when we were diving into this you make a difference between wanting and liking and i I just want to try and visualize this a little bit if you can imagine your brain where this dopamine we call it the dopaminergic pathway actually takes place is there's three really important parts in your brain of where this whole anticipation and craving is occurring and they're going to sound like big words but i'm going to um humanize them a little bit Give give me the big words okay first one prefrontal cortex if you can imagine you just point right in your forehead prefrontal cortex this is what makes us different to all other animals it's uh the piece of the puzzle that leads to conscious thought and that's what we call the ceo of the brain we've spoken a lot about it over previous episodes the next one i like this word striatum striatum the striatum and this is known as the nucleus accumbens you just want to think about this as the motivational center if you will this is the real key thing where dopamine is actually projected onto and then you've got something called the vta which is the ventral tegmental area. And all I want you to think about these three things is prefrontal cortex. If you imagine my analogy is a ship, Samuel, which is the PFC actually allows you to steer the ship, right? We're steering the ship. The striatum 
right? That's the part that actually leads you to want to steer the ship, right? That's the desire. That's the craving to steer the ship. And the VTA is actually the thing that produces all the energy, right, to actually do that. And that's the dopamine that's projected right onto the striatum. So I want, when I was diving into this, we have a very clear model of where this happens. Every single time you have a trigger, a cue, this is happening in your brain. Quite literally, the VTA just puts a bunch of dopamine into your striatum and then your striatum links with your PFC to actually execute the behavior. So it happens so, so, so quickly, but your CEO is linking with the motivational center, um, which leads to this anticipation to execute the desired behavior. Yeah. So brainy. I so love brainy. That. <laughs> so, so brainy. No, I mean, that's what people are here for. Some of that brain science. So to like the, the concept of this ship being this ship being steered by, you know, this captain, your PFC, but really being powered and propelled by dopamine, which is the, the crew members going to work. Uh really powerful analogy because at the end of the day, dopamine motivates all our actions. It actually it helps us move. If your dopamine receptors are faulty, you experience Parkinson's. You, you experience loss of movement. Um, and because of this reinforcement learning, like we talked about, which is how dopamine teaches us what to do next, of this prediction error coding, you know, we expect something to feel good and then we experience it and there's a difference and that's how we learn what to do again. And because of that anticipation, Kieran mentioned, dopamine is really responsible for all our addiction behaviors and all our behaviors in general. Because it motivates our actions. It's so true. And when we when I was going into this, when we were looking in the sort of the, the drug induced stuff, it's so interesting to note like what your baseline or your normal level of dopamine actually is. Because in right now in your normal day, it's like 50 nanograms per deciliter and take the measurement apart. But if you have your best day, a hundred, so it doubles. If you have your worst day, it goes to 40. And the reason I, I mentioned this scale is it doesn't take a lot for you to have a bad day but it takes a lot to have a good day. And that's why opioids have been such an issue in America and the rest of the world because quite literally when you take something like heroin or methamphetamine, you literally get to 1,000 nanograms per deciliter. It is 10 times the amount that people get from sex. Sex is about 100, right? And that's meant to be arguably the most pleasurable thing, 10 times, which leads to massive issues, as you can imagine, um, when these bad habits become reinforced. Okay. Just a fun fact. And, and that's a, a brilliant fact. I didn't actually know it was that high, that high uh, in terms of receptors. So, I mean, you have this dopamine dependence, which is drug dependence and addiction. And not only is, you know, this problematic when it comes to uh, harder addictions, but also anything that's rewarding to the brain can become addicting. Netflix, junk food, social media, behaviors. Just behaviors, right? Behaviors. Just simple behaviors. Is anything that has a reward, you know, anything that has a reward attached is going to trigger that dopamine. So because of this, our behaviors are really being changed and hijacked by dopamine. And this is how we become addicted to things in our environment, which is a great segue for our next section on the problems of addiction and dopamine. And now we enter the next phase, which is to look at, in terms of addiction, why it becomes so, so difficult to break. Because let's be frank, Sam, if everyone could break bad habits, we'd be living in a world where everyone would have awesome habits, but it just so happens that that is actually not the case. Um, and I think there's two, well, there's a main thing that stands out as in terms of why 
addiction or bad habits are so, so hard to break. And because an addiction is basically a habit, but that's a habit that's bad for you, the learning and the constant reinforcement, as you spoke about earlier, it reinforces itself. The whole aim of the brain is to become as efficient as it possibly can, right? It doesn't want to expend loads and loads of energy doing a thing it's going to repeat a hundred times across a day. It doesn't make any sense into a waste of energy. And that's why the learning pathways as a first one become more efficient with bad habits, just as good habits. So Sam, I want to imagine just for a second, can you please imagine for me that your brain is like a bunch of vines? Close your eyes. Your brain is like a bunch of vines. Now tell me what you picture. When you say vine, when I say vine, what do you picture? Wine. Okay, wrong heuristic. You're the worst. (laughs) With a vine, you see obviously all the branches and it's quite messy and it's quite all over the place, right? And that's when uh, over time you have someone that prunes those leaves. You need to make it look right. And that's what happens with reinforcement learning, as you said. The brain becomes more efficient, so the areas that are used more often become more loaded. It becomes more reinforced. But the areas that are not used become less present with all these vines. And so the vine will then curve to a certain direction based on the behavior that it wants. And that becomes such an interesting model of plus and minus. If we want to actually grow stuff, novelty, new associations, you increase knowledge and skills. That's growth. But if you want to prune, that's consolidation, that's efficiency, that's habit formations. And the the pathways become myelinated. So all I basically have to say to you is you get better and more efficient at the bad habit the more you do it. And that's why a guy called Antonello Bonci, great Italian dude, <laughs> he said addiction is a pathological form of learning. And that's essentially what it is. It's learning, but it's learning that's bad for you. And there's so many things that we learn that are bad for us, as I'm sure, I'm sure you know. Uh, as, as I'm going to start talking about, yeah, it's learning to do more of what's bad for us because it feels good. And there is no better example of this then been watching TV. Binge watching TV. I'm guilty of it. What are you watching I at the moment? Uh, I don't even remember it was that bad. <laughs> I, I got to the point where I filtered through about four or five TV series and I, I one or two episode um, at a time because I just I couldn't stick with it. No attention span. What about you? What are you watching? Uh, at the moment, re-watching Avatar Aang. I'm sorry. Oh, it's, oh, it's so good. It's so good. Uh, I think it's the best. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, it's not brain related, but it's a great TV series. It's Highly so recommended. But um, to get back to this point about binge watching, uh, back off the tangent, I'm guilty of this. There's some really interesting research uh, Netflix released. They found in a study that 61% of users regularly watch between two to six episodes of a show in one sitting. Two to six wow. episodes. That's great. That's binging. That's binging. And they, they ran another study where they found that most, the majority, it was over 80% of users, uh, Netflix users specifically, chose to binge watch series. And that 73% of participants reported positive feelings mm. associated with binge watching. Mm. So binge watching is a perfect embodiment of this concept of uh, addiction and the addiction model playing out in our behavior because of the way episodes are structured because of the way Netflix does it. And it's actually dopamine that is driving so much of this binge watching behavior. I want you to imagine now you get to the end of an episode, Kieran, mm-hmm. what do they usually have just before the break? It's always like the, the next episode, like segue yeah. that's like on the cliffhanger vibe. Cliffhanger. Perfect. So there's some theory out there called the informational gap theory or curiosity gap. 
And what it what it basically says is that the brain likes to close gaps in information that it anticipates, like we talked about before, that anticipates are going to lead to something it wants to know or it's curious about. And there's no better example of this than a TV series. It's so true. Like even Instagram marketing, mate. Like (laughs) Instagram marketing at the end, it leaves you on a quote unquote cliffhanger (laughs) to get you get you going. To to get you going. Well, that's that's how it works because as humans, we are so curious about what happens next. And the reason is because we have that dopamine anticipation, the expectation of finding out something that's going to be so amazing and change our lives, or at least tell us what happened to Tommy after Rachel broke up with her in that last episode. And so we click next. We click next on the episode and suddenly it's 2 a.m. and you've got the sheets up to your eyes and you think to yourself, I've got to work tomorrow and I really, really regret that decision. I might be speaking from personal experience. I'm just going to let you be there for a bit. You just need you need, yeah. you need, you just need to be there for a little bit. Just reflect upon what you've done. <laughs> yeah, this is Sam's therapy hour. Um, Sam and Kieran, please enjoy. Uh, so the, the, uh, the binge-watching example is a really great uh, way of showing how this, this dopamine prediction um, and addiction in the brain really triggers us to continue on mindless behavior. And Netflix doesn't make it any easier when they have that autoplay next feature, which is a really problem. But it's all about like, I mean, how do you stop yourself from watching 10 episodes? It's really about resisting temptation. Yeah, temptation, hey. It's uh, it's one of those things that leans you in. That's why relapse is so common when it comes to all mm. sorts of addiction. And I think that's, we've obviously spoke about how the learning of the bad behavior becomes really inefficient, as is binge watching is a really good example of that. But as you get more and more addicted, as you continue to double down on that behavior, the, it becomes so much more difficult to resist that temptation. And that's because the connection, remember how we talked about the CEO, Sam, the thing that's steering the ship, um, the thing that actually then coordinates the behavior, it loses control over time, where the striatum, that motivational center, overrides everything. So all you think is seeking and anticipating that particular object. You narrow in your focus. And there was a research study done by Connolly, Bell, Fox, and Garavan, four people. Got to attribute. You know how it is. And they, they looked at people that took drugs. And then over time, over a 10 to 25-year span, they clearly lost density of gray matter volume, so the area of their brain, um, in the right anterior cingulate. And all you need to know about that is the PFC, the CEO, it lost its ability, especially with that particular habit. And so that becomes super, super interesting in that famous marshmallow test. Do you remember that one, Sam? The marshmallow test? I've heard about this way too many times. Oh, but I can know. you Because I really like yeah. it. I'm a fan. So basically all it said is you got a bunch of kids in a room and these psychological experimenters put a marshmallow there and they said you can't eat it. If you wait 10 minutes, then you'll get two more. And there was the whole idea of delaying your gratification to get a greater reward later. And what it showed is basically the conclusion that most of the children, and this was actually replicated in adults, which is terrible. They used it with donuts um, in that, yeah, they would give in. They'd give in to the immediate um, gratification. And it showed you that when you get close to the reward, the perceived value increases. So it's really, really hard to resist because it seems so much more worthwhile to eat the cake or eat the donut or eat that now than yeah. the imagined sort of future happiness that you would actually receive. And so, yeah, it becomes so much harder to resist temptation because that connection is weakened massively. Use it or lose it. Totally, totally. It's so it's so much harder. So much harder not to eat chocolate when you've got it on the plate in front of you. Exactly. Well, and chocolate and just phones. Like think about phones. <laughs> like that's that's the hardest part. Phone, phones is the big one. Um, and to give you some context, 
we I had this question posed to me, and it was like, why do I open Instagram without realizing every time I unlock my phone? And it's it's a great question. And it's all because of dopamine and habitual behavior, right? So initially, when you downloaded Instagram for the first time so many years ago, take yourself back to your childhood, please, on oh, a wow. journey. But, uh, <laughs> but when you're first using it, and the same with any social media app, really, is it's really goal-oriented behavior. You, you open the app, you wanted to do something, comment on people's photos, like, scroll through. But over time, as you receive that reward signal from the app, likes, comments, shares, ding, 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 these positive interactions, the, the encouragement, and even the escapism and fantasy of seeing influences and imagining be them, they trigger these dopamine releases. And as Kieran said, this dopamine pathway or this reward pathway, behavior pathway becomes stronger over time. So it ends up to the point where you build this habitual behavior and you open your phone and this pathway in your brain is so strong, you can't help yourself but open Instagram instantly. And does that happen for you? It does. I remember seeing a stat and again, people, I want to hold me to this, Sam, we'll look at it after, but I'm pretty sure people open up their phones a minimum of like 160 to 200 times a day, just randomly. Like you're not even consciously saying, oh, yeah, I want to look at this. You literally just look at it. It's terrible. I did not know that. And I would actually wager it's probably much higher. Probably. (laughs) Severe uh, understatement. Um, Here's a quick way to think about it before I just wrap up talking about this. Think about your phone as a bag of dog treats. And your dog- You're loving this dog treat analogy. I love it. <laughs> I think it's really apt. And lots of people have dogs. Just think about your phone. It's this bag of dog treat, and your dog has learned this one trick it does, and it gets a trick, a treat every time it does this trick, and that's to sit. So as soon as it sees the bag of treats, your dog says, Oh, I'm gonna sit because I know I'm getting one. <laughs> you opening Instagram is your brain sitting on command. That's, exactly <laughs> that's, that's, that's a good way of putting it, actually. That makes that sense. That is exactly what's happening, right? You know, it's expecting this reward from social media, likes, other photos of other people, engagement, social rewards, all of that. And then instinctively, you're committing this behavior because it has learned it via reinforcement. Sam, I think that's your, your best analogy. Like you've had some great ones. That is, that's, yeah, good. <laughs> well done. <laughs> I, worked, I worked really hard at that. <laughs> Spent an hour on it. <laughs> workshop in that my, my job is a copywriter so i'm i'm i hope my boss hears this and she realizes you promotion. know promotion to have some skills um and just to wrap up really quickly about social media they've done some brain scans of of social media addicts so it's actually a syndrome now social media addicts of those who are drug and they are, their brains are similar to people who have drug dependencies and there was a research done by california state university and they call it SNS now, SNS addiction, which is social media addiction. And if this is something you really struggle with, jump on braintools.mn.co. We've just uploaded a little bit of a, a mini post talking about social media addiction, talking about how it works and how you can wean yourself off. And it's just this free community we have there where we're talking about it. So if this is something that you care about, jump on there uh, before we move on. Um, and there's obviously lots of problems with this addiction. You know, we're constantly distracted. There's actually a, a new thing called phantom vibration syndrome. What is that? What? <laughs> what? Yeah, like well, I don't know. Every time someone says phantom, I think phantom of the opera. So I'm not in a good way to actually even try and answer this. <laughs> what is it? 
It's it's that sensation you get where you check your phone because you thought you heard a vibration. Oh, yeah. Okay. This is like classic WhatsApp, right? If you have notifications on, yep. you like pick it up and you're like, oh, they didn't reply to me, but I swear I heard that. Totally. That's it. Well, I mean, it now has its own syndrome because it's so popular. It's like the phantom limb. This makes so much sense now, the naming convention. <laughs> now it's I understand. Phantom <laughs> of Gen Y. Um, yeah, so that's 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 how like social media is so addictive and, and specifically our phones because of this reinforced learned pathway and because of the connection that builds in certain parts of our brain. That makes a lot of sense because I think the final part that makes, as you have pointed out, like these examples, which are really resonating with me personally, um, is that like the emotional response. Like when there's been a lot of research done in terms of loved ones looking at people who are addicts of either behavioral base. So gambling is a thing that's gotten a lot of um, attention since like the mid 2000s onwards. And that became the first behavioral based, um, I suppose, if you will, addiction that was put outside of drugs. Um, and what becomes really interesting when people are watching their own um, loved one go through this is they look at it and they are sitting there thinking, why are they keep doing it? And what happens in the person's brain is the emotional response, these, these visualizations that the prefrontal cortex actually creates, they end up remembering the more rich and the pleasureful memories. They, they sugarcoat it, the whole idea of, you know, red rose-tinted glasses. So they only remember the good stuff and they constantly go through and they ignore the terrible consequences. And to the terrible consequences where you see an addict, you're like, wow, they must be in such a bad way. But in their head, they're constantly seeking that pleasurable experience because it takes over their entire consciousness, which is really interesting. Because it's all they can think about. Oh, that's so strong. It's that's so strong. Uh, so hard to break a habit, hey? It's really hard. I mean, it's, they're wired into our brains. It's, it's how we learn things. No wonder they're so hard to break a habit. But- Speaking of, this is the part where we're coming up to talk about our six brain tools for dealing with everyday addictive habits in our next section. So stay tuned for that. All right, now we come to the section where we're talking about brain tools and I've got to be honest, I've got a bit of a bone to pick here and I've got a, pro- I've got a problem. Samuel, are you okay? Do you need a little bit of therapy? Do you want to lie down on the couch? I would like to lie down. All right. I'd like to talk about Samuel, you're lying down on the couch. I've now got my notepad and pen out. Samuel, what seems to be on your mind today? Before we go on to these brain tools, I need, to, I need us to address a big myth out there. Dopamine fasting, it is not backed by neuroscience at all and it is baloney coming straight out of Silicon Valley. And I'm not having a bar of it, Kieran. Well, Samuel, I I need to understand. Um, What is dopamine fasting? So there's this new hoopla coming out of the Silicon Valley, this concept of a dopamine detox or fasting where you take an abstained period away from all your technologies that are supposed to alleviate you from your addiction to dopamine. But that's such BS. <laughs> and I've got three reasons why. I've got three reasons why. You're so not happy with this. <laughs> I'm so furious because it's not rooted in neuroscience. And much like a lot of the ideas propagated by Silicon Valley entrepreneurs who think they are experts in everything, even though they only created one software platform ever, 
Um, it's it's just been uh, <laughs> drive by. <laughs> I know, a bit of a drive-by shooting, but they, they often claim they have all these productivity haps. So there are three massive problems with this concept of dopamine fasting. One is that a day or a short period of time of dopamine fasting does not magically alter your brain and change your connections that have built up over years of use. That is not how the brain works. You don't study Spanish for a day and then the next day wake up fluent. It takes time. Two, you can't dopamine fast because every day you're alive, even if you abstain from addictive sources, your brain is producing dopamine. It is the reason we move and we act. And without it, you can't even walk. Like we said before, if your dopamine neurons are faulty, this is what leads to Parkinson's disease. Mm. Three, trying to dopamine fast does not actually have meaningful impact on dopamine levels. Your levels will be the exact same. It's just the sources where that dopamine is coming from will change because they're all in relation to your diet. So it's it's BS. It's BS. Why do you think it's gained so much movement then? Sorry, therapist had on. Samuel, why do you think it's gathered so much momentum then? Because the underlying concept behind it is actually okay, which introduces our first brain tool. What a segue. <laughs> and our first brain tool is this. It's really simple. If you're addicted to technology, social media, take a technology break or a vacation. You know, take a break from your phone, your Netflix account, your social media, unplug, but try to do so in a way that doesn't make you feel uh, socially isolated or disconnected. And why you'd want to do this is because you are actually de-enforcing, and I made that term up, that is not a term, yep. but the associated <laughs> neural pathways. So because you're not constantly refiring these dopaminergic pathways that are associated with that action, with that opening of Instagram and checking your likes and, and your profiles, you're taking away the reward cue and the outcome from the technology. It means these pathways naturally atrophy over time and they do weaken a little bit. And it actually, it, this means that you become naturally somewhat less addicted initially, although it does take a lot of time um, and it gets weaker. It's a bit like if you, you go to the gym and you get really strong, if you stop going to the gym for a little bit, you lose some of that strength. The same thing happens with these dopamine addictions. So you're probably wondering, Kieran, I know you're looking at me quizzically, like how do I do this? Really simply, really simply to take a tech vacation. And we talked about this a little bit in the well-being podcast and episode where we said, you know, do an audit of your technology and, and what's what you're addicted to. But really simply, just take a couple of days or a period of time where you abstain from the technology that you're really addicted to, a day here, a few days there, and try to replace that connection with some other things, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. One way I've done this personally, I've deleted Facebook, I've deleted a couple of Instagram and various apps off my phone so that I physically can't have them. But that leads us really well into like what apps should you be deleting? What apps should you keep? And how do you determine which ones are adding value or detracting from your life? Have you have you possibly got us a solution there, Jimmy? <laughs> I, I possibly do. And Sam, I, I really do like that whole idea of that tech vacation two to four weeks. And that mm. leads quite nicely into uh, my brain tool, which is brain tool number two. Uh, which is uh, map out your bad habits. Last week, we went through the habit scorecard where, and just to remind people, if you haven't seen that episode, please have a look at it. Episode four, all about how to create good habits. Essentially, what you do is you get all your habits, whether big or small, you assign it, whether it's positive, negative, or neutral in terms of what it adds value to your life. And then that gives you a really clear picture of how you go about it. But that's, that's not enough. 
We need to actually have awareness of it. And what you do with mapping out your bad habits is take that individual habit and apply the model of the cue, of the craving, of the routine, and of the reward and consciously look at it. And the reason you should use something like this is because as we spoke about earlier, your prefrontal cortex in your striatum, remember the CEO and the thing that forces your CEO or pushes you to actually do stuff, what happens, the link between those two becomes really, really small over time. And what you do by using that conscious thought is you're building up the PFC. You're giving the PFC power, the CEO giving more power to rule the rest of your brain. And this means you're more likely to be able to resist temptation if you use it a lot more. And Sam, really interestingly, as an example of this, that's what with addicts they've been doing. They've actually showed addicts um, the, the pictures of their brain live when they're exposed to some form of um, cue whether it's, say, what drug do they like or showing them a picture of, say, white powder and showing the people their brain in live action has made the person feel pretty empowered to be like, wow, that's actually going on in my brain right now. Now, the really interesting part for, uh, for using it, how does it work? Pick a bad habit, okay, and then reflect and literally document in those four columns, which we've got on braintools.co, uh, uh, the mn.co, got to get that right, um, where you literally can do this. So I'll give you an example. Samuel, do you like donuts? I I might like donuts. Yeah. Yes, you do. You know you do. Don't lie to me. Well, <laughs> Samuel, I feel like you might have this problem. I'm kidding. I'm not meaning anything by oh. that. But if we were to take this model of actually say I've got pen and paper, I'm writing this down. The cue for donut is you smell a donut shop as you walk down the street. So in one of the senses <laughs> is important, smelling it, seeing it, mm-hmm. whatever then you have a craving. The craving is you begin to crave the donut. You actually visualize the donut. You might feel the beautiful sensation of, oh, that donut would be amazing. Happens with pizza all the time. Then the third part though is you end up buying it. That's the routine. You literally end up buying a donut and you eat it. And then what happens is the reward is you satisfy your craving to eat the donut, but then an association, that learned reinforcement, as you said, Sam, happens, which is buying a donut becomes associated with walking down the street. So every time you then walk down the street, you smell that, um, you end up uh, likely to actually buy the donut. That's what Subway did so well, the smell of Subway bread. It was a oh, constant yeah. cue and reminder to get you in the shop. And so what I implore people to do is to map out one of those bad habits, employ your conscious brain, and you'll see that bringing awareness to something is easily the first step in terms of breaking and eliminating a bad habit. Totally. Finding finding the bad habits because you can't counteract those addictions and bad habits without knowing what they are. But then what do you do next? It's a very good question. And again, you've got to make it hard. So I hear you have done a little bit of research into this. Uh, I might have done a little bit of research and that might be the perfect segue into my second brain tool, brain tool number three. Make it really, really hard. This one's super simple. We can be make it really quickly. The harder it is to do something, the more perceived effort in the brain, the less likely you are to do it. So if you want to stop yourself being addicted to something, social media, junk food, Netflix, make it really hard for yourself to indulge that addiction, to take that behavior. Why? Well, our brains are lazy. They're, they're optimized. <laughs> it's so true. Literally, our brains are lazy. And, and uh, you look at all the neuroscience research and, and a lot of the pioneers in the field, and they'll talk about the fact that we're prioritized for low effort rewards. This is how we survived, it's- right? 
It's ROI. It's like your brain is literally it's an ROI. ROI machine. Return on investment. I want to do very it's little to get a lot. ROI. <laughs> <laughs> and, and because this is the reason they love sugar, Netflix, autoplay is the next episode, why Amazon has one-click purchases because it's so easy. Your brain just complies. It doesn't have to think or use effort to process it. And if it's easy, we'll do it. There's Daniel Kahneman, who's the, the godfather. Oh, of one of your faves. <laughs> one of my faves. And, and um, yeah, behavioral economics and, and psychology essentially talks about this analogy of, of if, it's, if it's easy, we'll do it. And it's like the difference between forcing someone to do something with a carrot and stick and, and really trying to incentivize them versus making it so easy they don't have to think about it. So the the inverse of that, the inverse of that, which is what this is all about, is making it so hard that you struggle to do it. And a couple of ways you can do this. How? How is this practical? Well, make your passwords really hard to remember and require yourself to log in every time you use a social media app. Super simple. You can go in and change your, your settings so that every time you use it, you actually have to log in. And this will help you fight that urge because you open Instagram and now that you have to log in, you have this moment of recognition where you say, actually, I'm probably not going to do that this time because no, nah, it takes too much effort. That's it. That's it. Make it hard for yourself to do and you'll do less of it. And that is so easy. <laughs> and that is so easy. Oh, so powerful. And that also leads to brain tool number four, which is about inverting what you learned in the episode before, but that's actually coming in the next section. So stick around for brain tool number four. Brain tool number four, which I'm very, very excited to do. And yes. Sam, uh, I know I did a pop quiz with you on episode three, Fear. I'm going to yeah. do it again. I'm sorry. I just want to test that you were listening to me last really, time. Nah, really. <laughs> yeah, you weren't happy. I think you got, what, two out of five? But this time, I'm very confident you're going to get 100%. And last yeah. week, we talked about the four laws of positive habit change from James Clear's Atomic James Habits. Yep. All I want to know from you, Sam, just one through four, because we talked about it a lot. What are the four laws of positive habit change as coined by one James Clear? Go ahead. Positive habit change. I mm-hmm. think I've got it. Okay. Uh, one of them is to, to make it attractive. Good. That's number two. I like it. Good. Uh, got to make it easy. You got to make it easy. Yes. Very good. It's got to be satisfying. True. Got to satisfy. It's got to be right? satisfying. It's got to be satisfying. And then number four is the habit has to be obvious. Sam, I'm actually so proud of you. You actually listened to me. <laughs> That's this is this is mind boggling. Well done. Hundred uh, percent. I, I may have may have those answers in front of me right now. Yeah, you totally do. Don't lie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, totally just just for dramatic effect. But based on what you said, James Clear's positive. Uh, laws of habit change. The key idea he brings upon is if you want to eliminate a bad habit or break a bad habit, use the principle of inversion. And inversion basically means flip what you are currently saying in the opposite direction. So while these are geared to positive habit change, if we were going to breaking bad habits, we would simply flip to the opposite of each of those things. And so the tool that I want to give yourself is the four inverted laws of habit change, which is instead of making it obvious, Make it invisible, out of sight, out of mind. Instead of making it attractive, make it unattractive. 
Instead of making it easy, make it difficult or hard, as you said in your previous brain tool. And then finally, make it unsatisfying instead of satisfying. And that becomes really interesting when you look at bad habits and changing it. Because as we said, you should use this very clearly to break those habits. But instead of going through all of them, Sam, because you've already touched on make it difficult, I just want to start with the first one that comes to mind, which is make it invisible. And that's actually my brain tool number four is based on those four laws of negative habit change, make it invisible. And you should use this when you are actually really trying to get rid of bad habits, especially given COVID-19, where you are currently stuck at home, the environment is your immediate physical space. And the key idea here is out of sight, out of mind. If you have to make more decisions and if you have to resist so many cues, as we said, it's literally as if someone's like trying to barge down your door, right? They keep barging, they keep barging. It's going to break eventually like a dam holding water. And what you want to do is actually minimize the amount of decisions you need to make. And Jordan Peterson makes a, a very good quote where he says, you are both a bad boss and a bad employee. And he's not saying that in a necessarily cynical way, but he's saying basically don't trust yourself when it comes to these things. And how it works is, is really simple. Like if you want to use this, look at your immediate environment and based on the habit scorecard, based on the mapping of your habits, identify all the possible triggers, all the possible triggers, all the possible cues visually in terms of your sensory experience, remove them, literally get rid of them, take them away. Because if you take them away, you're now trusting a system as we've spoken about, you're not trusting yourself, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, so this could be like, uh, for example, if you were addicted to chocolate, chocolate, uh, not saying I am at all, but if you were per se, you would get rid of chocolate out of your house or you, you'd, you'd basically put it away so you couldn't see it. Yeah. You need to make the path of least resistance the ideal path. And that's exactly, to make it really practical, like there's a few people that do this in, uh, interestingly, Bill Gates is known for his thinking weeks. And I'm not saying everyone's going to be the richest person alive or one of, but he literally just brings books and he brings notepads and paper and he goes for it. Cal Newport, um, who we both love, he's uh, done books on So Good You Can't Ignore and you know digital minimalism. He does two to four week deep dive sort of vacations where he goes to his hermit hut and it's just him, his computer, no internet to write. And it's removing all the possible distractions, all the possible cues so that what you're trying to do becomes as easy as possible, but more importantly, the most obvious thing to do. So just to get really practical, if I, someone came to me the other day and said, Kieran, I want to write a book. And I was just having a just general conversation, a good friend of mine. And I said, okay, if you're struggling to write, remove everything. That is going to distract from your writing. And you'll find when you get bored, you'll want to be stimulated, dopamine, and the dopamine will be seeped through writing. And it will just become the path of least resistance. And that's my brain tool number four, make it invisible. Love it. Make it invisible. Much like my dating life throughout my teenage years, invisible. <laughs> oh, my heart goes out to you. Thanks, <laughs> Sam. Uh, he needed some help. Um, exactly. Speaking of socialization and socialization, socializing, I should properly say that is a, the incorrect word. This actually brings me to brain tool number five, which is sometimes it's really hard to just eradicate things entirely out of your life. Cold turkey doesn't work for smokers. It also doesn't work for other forms of addictions. So what you can do instead is to find a way to replace the enjoyment from your addiction, from the stimulus that is providing that addiction with something that has more beneficial purposes to you. And the big one that comes to mind is either exercise or socializing. Why does this work? Well, it's because dopamine is produced regardless of what we do. 
what tech we use, uh, um, what we're involved in, what activities we do, we're always going to be producing dopamine. So trying to completely eradicate sources that provide this dopamine fix for us, this motivation can be really, really hard. But if you replace them with uh, some form of, of, of replacement, such as a social substitution, you're actually providing a way to plug that hole a little bit. And there's some really interesting studies and research around the benefits of social interaction and how it can be more addicting than cocaine. And I know what you're thinking, Kieran. That's that's a lot. That's a lot going on. <laughs> we, we've seen movies that can't be possibly true. But there's an infamous rat study where effectively rats, which are used as surrogates for human brains, we've talked about this before. Rats uh, were given the choice between a drip that contained uh, cocaine intravenously or a rat playground with other rats where they had the opportunity to socialize. And what the researchers found was after a brief period of interacting with the cocaine trip, the rats would prefer to go and socialize with other rats. And this has led them to theorize that one of the most pleasurable things to the human brain is social interaction and engagement, which makes perfect sense. It's how we evolved. It's how we survived. It's why we love Darwin. Darwin. It's, (laughs) It's why we love social media is because of that social interaction engagement, which is incredibly rewarding to our brain. So to use this and to get practical how you can use this is replace your social media interaction with a phone call. Super simple. I use this all the time. No kidding. You go to check Instagram to catch up with your friends. Rather than doing that, spend that same amount of time calling that friend or calling someone because when you have that communication and that connection with someone and you're talking two-way, the the interaction is substantially different from that addictive pathway you're experiencing with social media or your phone. And it's more fulfilling too. You're actually talking to someone. You're not talking to a phone and receiving these pseudo signals of uh, social engagement in the form of likes, comments, and shares. So to get practical, next time you have that impulse to just binge in social media, give someone a call. Call your best mate. It'll feel better on your soul. It's like substituting, as you said, um, you know, the the bad habit for a good habit that's more, even more desirable, that whole idea of more attractive, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, Penciling that in, which I really like. You know, substitute. Come off the bench. Come off the bench. Come off the bench. Sub the coach. Coach, sub this good one in, (laughs) which is, which leads really well into you know your last brain tool and and how you counteract your own narrative before you even go to deep dive into your Instagram account. Love it. Yeah, tool number six, brain tool number six. Essentially, it's called use your butt. Now, that sounds weird. I'm sorry. I'm not being inappropriate, I promise. But the whole idea here is it to change bad habits. And when you do it, it's very easy to relapse, as we've spoken about. And it's easy to judge yourself and fall into the self-loathing and, you know, um, self-hate when you say, oh, I did it again. I'm not good at this. I can't do it. And telling yourself, basically, you suck. So the way you can use this whole idea of but is when you start telling yourself a story internally, and we've spoken about that in fear, and we've spoken about that also in well-being, the moment you find yourself doing this and you judge yourself, focus on the actions you are taking to change that bad habit. Because last week we spoke about identity. We want to shape and shift the identity, not just the goal and the action. 
And so this drives the change in behavior because you're driving the change in belief. So I'm going to give you a really practical example based on sort of three different, yeah. um, if you will, self-limiting beliefs people have. First one, if people are overweight, I'm fat and I'm out of shape, but I could be in shape a few months from now if I go to the gym two to three times a week. You're changing the narrative. You're shortcutting or circuit breaking the normal pathway you normally take. A second one, if you feel like you're not very smart, you're dumb, you're not doing very well at work. I'm stupid and nobody respects me, but I'm working to develop a valuable skill like persuasion to improve that. And finally, if people fear failure, which everyone does, I'm a failure, but everybody fails sometimes and it's a pathway to success. And so creating that uh, breaker where you say but can be a really important way of changing the way you view yourself and changing the way you interact with other people in your everyday life. So brain tool six, use your butt. Use your butt. Oh, sit on it. Be thick. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> love that. No, that's, <laughs> that's, that's actually a, a, a really powerful one. And something we're going to touch on in future episodes is is the component of narrative and how important that is and how much it drives our behaviors and our actions. And you also referenced uh, fear too. We have released an episode on that. So if you want to dig down into fears and understand them, go and listen to that. It's episode three. That's super powerful. To wrap up, uh, my brain tool number one was Take your technology vacation, take a break, take some away time away from those addiction sources. Brain tool number two, Kieran, that was one you had. Uh, map out your bad habits. Actually do the four processes, your cue and so on, and map them out so you understand exactly what's going on and when it's happening. And you're three. Map them out. And if you want to do the mapping, go check out braintools.mn.co. Kieran has made an amazing brain habit mapper so you can check that all out brain tool number three was make it hard make it really hard for you to do that behavior to engage in that addictive habit because this friction will prevent your brain naturally from wanting to do it uh which lead led really well into uh brain tool number four yeah make it invisible use the four laws of inverted habit change make it invisible out of sight out of mind resist temptation which substitution come off the bench leads to yours Absolutely. Brain tool number four was if you can't do any of those things and you still have that addiction there, substitute it for something that's beneficial for you, whether that's a phone call or exercise, try to replace that habit, that addictive behavior with something that is a little bit more beneficial, which really leads into the butt of brain tool number six. Use your butt. Every time you tell yourself a story that is more in a negative negative self-talk, Say but and look to the outcome and the actions you're taking to change that and you rewire things a la Growth Mindset by one Carol Dweck, which will be on a future episode as well, which leads us to our 80-20. Samuel, what's your, what's your main takeaway from this episode on addiction? My 80-20 is addictions are everywhere. They're all under the surface and they're mobile these days. To break them, you just need to take away the sources and make them harder to get. Kieran, what's your 80-20? I love that. And based on that, actually employ conscious mind. Consciously reflect Mm -hmm. on all your bad habits and understand how they happen, when they happen, and where they happen. Wow, love that. And if you're liking this content, content and you're really interested in digging down further and diving a little bit deeper into the well of brain knowledge that we're trying to share, 
Go and check out our growing community at braintools.mn.co. Like Kieran alluded to, he's going to upload his uh, habit mapper worksheet, which is really powerful. There's a little article in there about social media syndrome and the habits forming around that. So if that's something you struggle with, that's worth checking out. But that pretty much does us for today. Just wanted to call out to next episode, which we're so stupidly excited. About. <laughs> we're so excited. It's going to be very like interesting. With the next episode, we're talking about love, Tinder, and neuroscience. How do those three work together? You've got to have to listen and tune in to find out more. Dating in the time of COVID, according to your brain. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. Really loved having you here and can't wait to see you next week. That's it from me. Thank you and uh, bye for now. See you later, guys. Thanks for joining in. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Brain Tools. We've got three quick things to hit you with before you go. One, if you want to hear other Brain Tools, you can find our other episodes at the link below and on all podcasting platforms. Number two, if you like this episode, then give us a review on iTunes or Spotify only if it's above four stars. And number three, you can go ahead and join the braintools.mn.co community where we'll post a complete brain guide based on this episode, plus a ton of other resources. Best of all, it is completely free. Cannot wait to see you next episode. And until then, bye for now. See you next episode.